On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group talks to friend of the Palaver, Mark Anthony Kay. Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter, as we welcome friend of the Palaver and member of Project Gemini, Mark Anthony Kay. All right, so welcome, uh, gentlemen. Mark, it's very good to have you back here as we talk about the latest record from Project Gemini, What's on Your Mind, if my counting is correct, the eighth Project Gemini record, which is, um, I guess, pre-sales are going on now, and um, yeah, that's that's what we're here for. So really excited to uh, have you back on the show. It's been a while, and look very much looking forward to catching up. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, the pre-sales going pretty good. It's the CD, right? So yeah. usually for me, the uh, the vinyl is the big seller. As, a, as you, you know, ten years ago, you never would have thought that that would be the case. You're talking about you know selling vinyl, you know, and selling that well compared to CDs. But yeah, I mean, the CDs are going good. Uh, it's been one of those things that's been selling well for me, even with my with my back catalog too. So. Uh, there's still people out there that love the CD medium, it seems. I'm one of them. I like them both. Yep. You can't take vinyl in the car. You cannot take vinyl in the car. That is true. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, that's great. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that, uh, you know, like I said, we're getting together to, to talk about this. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff here. Uh, you know, when we're talking about the, the six tracks on this record, um, as usual, we have the 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 uh, the cover art by James McCarthy, uh, and I guess I had um, I had read somewhere this is um, in some regards, and I, I'm assuming this came from you, a companion to What Lies Beyond. So uh, again, sort of a a more personal, introspective look into things. So hmm. um, I also saw. Uh, you know, your um, most recent podcast um, about this record. And, and you you seem to be very, very positive on this yourself. So maybe walk us through a little bit, Mark, about, you know, when this was put together, the ideas that kind of, you know, you're expressing here and, and you know, what you, you know, we're gearheads, what you did differently, what you did the same, and how this all came about. Um, well, the funny thing is that I kind of looked at this record when I was done, and uh, I mean, lately I've been kind of more thinking about the world around me and how it's affecting things, uh, both for myself and for people around me. Uh, and the reason why I said it's kind of a sister record, because, and it, it, this is kind of, you know, when I say this, at first people kind of laugh because I say, they're both what albums, you know, what, <laughs> you know, what's on your mind, what, you know, what lies beyond, you know, the, the, they're what albums, you know what I mean? Uh, and those, they both seem to have similar 
messages and they're kind of asking questions about what's going on and you know you know what i mean like the, kind of the, the questioning the world around it and this saw this album in general is kind of like that as well um there's there's a few songs on here that uh people uh, have mistaken for being personal stories about me for example there's a song on there called uh, uh searching for the light mm-hmm. right and people are always asking that they're like, you know, were you going through some kind of depression or something? I go, no, it has that doesn't have anything to do with depression. Actually, it's it's kind of a a, a story in one sense because if you kind of look at it, it's, it kind of reflects on a guy who's in jail, right? And questioning back the you know has his life, the you know things that he's done through there. And you know, there's a line in there where he, where he questions whether his friends and family will come back and see him in ten years because they've been seeing him for the last 20 in there, will they continue to come and see him? So it's it's kind of, you know, questioning what he's done and questioning the future. You know, the, the, I always seem to be interested in the whole, you know, uh, what what's coming up next and what can we do to change it if it's not something good or if we don't expect something good to come up, right? I mean, there's a song on there too called The Little Chair, and I did an interview with uh, Ken from the uh, Kiss FAQ podcast, he, we have another one that we do called Look, It's Rock and Roll, this other podcast, and he interviewed me uh, about this record. And he asked me, he goes, the little chair, he goes, when I read it, he goes, I was hoping it, you know, I know it's about childhood and uh, not a very good childhood. I was hoping that it wasn't yours, was it? And I go, no, it's, it, <laughs> I don't tend to write stuff about me too much. I like to re- look around what's happening around me and kind of write about those things. Right. So, and I mean, I've known a few people who haven't had the best uh, childhood or upbringing. And there's always this uh, picture that I've had in my mind. And also I've, I've seen it in movies before where, you know, you did something bad as a child. And the first thing is go to your room is the kind of, you know, disciplinary mm-hmm. thing to do. And the, the thing that they used to do back in the old days, from what I remember, is that they would tell you to go sit in the corner and face the corner right and you'd always see that kind of little chair that they're sitting on sitting in the corner facing it and that's kind of where the 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 imagery and the sort of lyrical content came from that it's like the 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 punish like pun- remembering punishment and how this person got out of it sort of thing and, and i think that's interesting right like it as a writer of of anything whether it's songs or you know stories or or even poems or whatever Right, you have the ability to sort of just do th- what I like to think of as thought exercises and explore different ideas and situations that maybe you don't know directly, but maybe you're like, hmm, I wonder what that would be like, and sort of, you know, walk around in, in the room, so to speak, a little bit. So I, I, I definitely appreciate sort of where you're going um, with that. That's that's very cool. And I will say, you know, when I was listening to this, the little chair was kind of like the first song I think that stuck in my head. I don't know what it was about that particular hook or, or that line, but just that image was very, it formed very, very quickly and very strongly for me. So um, it's, it's interesting. You bring that up right out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I always thought that it was a strong image. And uh, if you look at the album cover as well, that James did, there's yeah. a there's a little chair in the maze, and it's you know kind of sitting there in the corner, right? I mean, uh, uh, once again, I just told him the name of the album, uh, and I sent him the album like the the songs, 
And I just told him, do whatever you want to do. No guidance on my part, again, on what to do. And he kind of did that himself, where he kind of put these little Easter eggs of like little uh, hints of the song titles in within the maze mm-hmm. itself, right? So I really enjoyed how he, he did that in there. So, I mean, it's very, very helpful as well, where I've always enjoyed these kind of albums where, you know, you can see some little extra uh, things in there to kind of, you know, if, tickle your mind, like Iron Maiden's uh, Somewhere in Time album cover. I've always loved that one where you look at it and there's always these little hints of other Iron Maiden songs within that album cover. If you look at the clock on there, there's, if the clock is two minutes to midnight. Like if you actually look at it, it is actually two minutes to midnight on the clock and that's an Iron Maiden song. So it kind of, I like how they do that kind of thing where they hint on little things within the imagery. It, it's it's. It's funny because I've been editing recently and I think this episode will probably come out um, immediately before the one in question. But we started a segment where we're talking about um, Sticks and Kansas on parallel timelines. And I think it was me who we were considering the first uh, four Sticks records together. And I, I made the, the comment that the Man of Miracles cover feels like a project gemini cover but not as good (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's always nice to uh you know see whatever new artwork that uh that james has for you said like that's always one of the things for me whenever you know i hear you've got a new record it's like oh i can't wait to see the artwork and see what james comes up with yeah he, he always does fantastic work uh i've always enjoyed it i mean he was one of the things when I look back at Project Gemini as a whole from the very beginning, one of the most important things I think that happened was me finding him because mm-hmm. he's always been such a complimentary part to my music. You know, I mean, lots of people say that, you know, when they listen to the music, they, they sometimes just look at the covers or look at the artwork and kind of, you know, it's kind of like those stories you used to hear about people with Kiss records where they say, oh, I opened Kiss Alive too. I'd open it and look at the, you know, the explosions in there and listen to the album. I and used to do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And and, and I, I understand that completely, you know, and even just other album covers as well. I remember sitting down and looking at, staring at the Moving Pictures album cover when I first got it and, you know, wondering, you know, what was going on or, you know, why was that woman crying, the old woman there? And why is there like a bag of groceries knocked over? You know, the, all, you, you, all these little things enter your mind when you're listening to music. And I think that's pretty important. What what music does to you mentally, right? So, Mark, when, you, when you're going through this, um, you know, you're coming up with these ideas. Are you, are you like one of those guys that, you know, carries around a notepad? paper with you everywhere you go and you jot down little things or you put it in the recorder or humming things or do, does, does does your does the experience of life just kind of come out of you when you're writing and at your instruments um well mu- musically i find that i'm just one of these guys that comes downstairs i'm a i've become a very much a creature of habit where i come downstairs every day at around let's say 11 30 in the morning and sitting here till about maybe three, and work on music. I, what 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 happens with that music that I work on? I don't know at the time whether it becomes a record or not. It's an, unimportant at that moment. I'm just working on stuff. I like to keep, you know, in practice and writing things. I I always believe that songwriting is a skill that you have to keep working at to become better at it. Right. So I I tend to do that. Uh, 
and musically, it's always seemed to work that way for me. I mean, and, and I'll be honest, I've been on a roll for the last year. I mean, I have this album done. I have the next album already done. And I have the 10th album pretty much already finished as well. Like mixed, mastered, everything. Holy so crap. I have, <laughs> yeah, so I have, a, I have a bunch of albums in the can already ready to go. So now this is just a matter of I'm releasing this one. Going to do the vinyl. Hopefully by June, July, I'll put out the next record. Right, because that was my goal for this year. I wanted to put out two albums this year, just like I did at the beginning. I did an ordinary day and a brand new day, were kind of pretty quick back to back releases, and I wanted to do the same thing. Not because I feel I have to do it, but because I, I found that the songs came to me so naturally. I didn't think there's any reason to kind of sit on it and wait. I wanted to get it out there and let people hear it. Right, uh, and and I think that it turned out really really well the cost of a regular album has gone up so much since the return of the vinyl, you know, record. And, you know, I've always tried to keep my records at, you know, the $30 Canadian, you know, point plus shipping, obviously. Right. And for American people, I know that, that they always feel that that's great. Even the U S I'm mean, sorry, even the UK and the European people have been feel that that's more than fair cost, especially when you get into the conversion of the dollar. Right. And, you know, I, I don't, don't feel comfortable with, you know, suddenly saying my record now has going to be charged $45 Canadian for a single record. And then, you know, for a double, it's going to cost, you know, 70 or what I, I, I don't know. It doesn't sit well with me. And it's funny because I did an interview uh, recently with uh, this lady named Rachel and uh, she has a stream uh, called Rachel's ghost. And she, she always says that she always feels that I, that I under, value my record she's like you should be charging much much more for your records you know and i, I for one who buy them would gladly pay you more for it and I, that's nice to hear when people say that but uh, i don't know it, i me as, a, as an artist i feel i have to be comfortable with that decision and i don't know if i'm comfortable with that maybe maybe i would might do 35 dollars or something and i, and I don't know i don't like talking about the financial end of things but you know but that's just how i am I, i'd rather just keep it this way keep people happy and know that people will buy it, you know? Well, I can totally appreciate and respect that, um, particularly in a world where many times I've been excited about an artist, you know, putting out a new album and going on and and finding out that the vinyl is, you know, in triple digits for, hmm. you know, a vinyl. And I'm, and, and even, even I have to say enough is enough, right? Like I'll just, I'll just buy the regular uh, CD or, or just pass, you know? So uh, I, I, I think that's awesome. And I think we're lucky that we have not just this Project Gemini album to look forward to, but two more in the, <laughs> in the, in the ready to go. Yeah. All right. All right, Paul, don't get it too far ahead. Mark, um, I was wondering, now that you, you, you've gone between these two albums, what lies beneath and what's on your mind, there seems to be a minimalist kind of, uh, I'm going to call it the Baroque era, kind of uh, taking something and stripping it way down, when in the previous album it was your Renaissance period where you incorporated orchestral music and keyboards and whatnot. Was that deliberate? And um, did, did you find it, it, it told the stories better on this album to, to become a little more knife-edge, you know, simple... Um, in your face as opposed to the the lush production 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting if you bring that up because what I found before was sometimes when I was mixing some of the prior records, I was, I wouldn't say pulling my hair out, but sometimes I was kind of sitting there listening to it and going, how am I going to fit this all together? Because I always looked at a mix as like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, everything has its place and everything fits in. If you, if you fit it in perfectly, then you have a great sound to it. And sometimes, you know, there had to be a lot of, you know, tweaking and touching here and adding this and removing that and sculpting here and this and that to make it work. And I've, I've never been unhappy with my records, the way they sound. But this one in particular, um, I kind of went in with an approach where I really wanted to focus in on the sounds from the beginning at its source. One of the big things that, that has happened between the last couple of records and this one is that I've upgraded a few different things in my studio. Number one, I got myself an SSL2 uh, USB interface, which has been a big, big change in it. I mean, SSL, as you all know, is like one of the world standards for you know mixing consoles and stuff like that. And having that as my interface for all my music stuff has really helped give it another stay, step in gloss, you know. And uh, another thing that I've started getting, uh, I'm not sure if, if uh, Paul might be aware of some of this stuff, but Universal Audio put out these fantastic things, like these kind of uh, uh, sound pedals, like uh, the universe. It's called the uh, the, the Lion. Oh. It's like a it's like a '68 Marshall sound, right? My entire YouTube history is videos of those pedals. <laughs> yes, Mark. yes, <laughs> yeah, and I got I have the '68 Lion uh, on here, and I also got the the Ox Box, the Ox the Ox Stomp actually, the, the the pedal version of it, where you have all these like emulations of different speaker cabinets and stuff like that. And man, has that ever made a big, 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 big difference in the guitar sounds? Because now instead of you know uh, going through a Marshall cabinet in the other room. And having my dog run upstairs hiding for cover when I was mm -hmm. trying to play some guitar stuff on here, I have this fantastic replication of it. And it's and it's not even like an IR, which is an impulse response. This is much more than an impulse response. This is an actual emulation, like that emulates the 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 movement of a speaker in motion while you're playing. It's not just like a snapshot and you have that same sort of sound throughout the whole performance. It changes as you move as the as the different textures you play the the mm -hmm. harder and lighter performance it actually emulates it perfectly right so it makes a big difference on that and that's one of the things i did on here and uh it's it's fantastic though that ken picked up on it that there are a lot less tracks uh as far as recording on these last couple records because i found that the drum sounds that i got in this record were much bigger uh, more they stood out a bit better and uh, the same with the guitar sounds and the bass tracks too i mean after i got that ox stop and i put my ampeg di box through that and found a couple of de decent speakers to to, repl to replicate and to complement it man did that ever help with the bass sound so i didn't need to do like you know four tracks of rhythm guitars i only needed to do, to do two i didn't need and then when i did keyboards i found that some of the just the sounds that I found, like some of my Hammond organ ones and stuff like that, I didn't need to do like two, three tracks at keyboard. I only needed to do one, or I needed to do two, like two Moog ones or something like that, or one Mellotron sound. The, there was less of it, and when it came to mix, it was much simpler, and I was able to do much more with those less tracks. Like I was able to put like a bigger reverb on it, for example, 
And if you do that with a lot of tracks, it becomes mushy and, you, you know, it's hard to start picking out sounds. But when you have less tracks and you do that, it the impact of those effects is much greater, you know. I'm just amazed after years of folks relying on plugins that were putting emulators into pedals. Is that to yeah. say is that to say that we can't rely on our computers to do it or or are they designing this for people to also take it into like a live situation? Yeah, a lot of people have been saying, uh, I, unlike Paul, I watch a lot of these videos, uh, a lot of my YouTube histories about these, you know, pedals like the, the Universal Audio ones or the TC Electronic ones that they've come out with, the Jim's 45 and the Jim 800 and, uh, you know, the, all the different replications of the amplifiers that they have now in pedal form. And a lot of people are saying that they take these pedals now, put them under a pedal board, and they f they find how amazing these things are in a live situation as well. So instead of dragging out you know, a 70-pound Marshall head, and, you know, with you, you can just bring this, bring a power amp, like, you know, like a, you know, solid-state 150-watt power amp, bring a 212 cabinet and use this, and next thing you know, you have a great sound live, and you don't have to break your back carrying all this heavy gear anymore. So I, I think that uh, it's just becoming a, a, a time now where the technology is really becoming that good where people are starting to think twice about maybe bringing a real Marshall. So, so Mark, in all of that, you mentioned uh, bass sound, which leads us to the sole uh, external contributor on this particular record, uh, David Donnelly, who appears yes. on The Moment. You want to tell us a little bit about uh, that collaboration? And Sure. Um, David Donnelly is somebody who shouldn't be, uh, you know, uh, a, a new there shouldn't be a new name to people who are involved with project gemini i mean he's been involved with a few things of mine in the past uh he's appeared i think on uh as far back as the first book book one yeah uh, book two and uh, the interesting thing is the moment was written during the book three time period now what happened with that song was that you know being that it was a concept you know album uh, all three books that were interconnected. Uh, that song was one of those songs where I I had enough material already to tell the story, and I was left with a situation where I had a great song, but didn't it wasn't needed to complete the story, so it was left off, right? And with the with the intention of of, of uh, using it in the future, which I would I knew I would, and I'm glad I did because David did play bass on it, and he did a great job on there so i didn't want to leave that you know in the dustbin for all time when i had such a great song you know at my disposal so i, I ended up taking it uh rewrote some of the lyrics uh, based around the concepts that i was doing on this album and lo and behold i you know had another great song that i could use on uh this album i mean that, that is a question that i keep getting asked a lot because a lot of people keep telling me that one of their favorite records is book two and I think the reason why book two is such a popular thing is because it's the one that had all the guests on it. Lee Pomeroy, yeah. Billy Shearwood, you know, Joe Bailey, David Donnelly. And people always ask me, is there going to be a time when you're going to go back and maybe have some people come on again? And, you know, I, I'm always open to that. And, you know, maybe on album 11, maybe I'll start thinking about <laughs> having people come on there because up until book 10, everything's pretty much done, like I said, and there's nobody on it except me for the exception of this record 
I was with David, it's pretty much just me on these records. So, and you know, there's a reason for that because I was so inspired of late writing wise, whether it was musically or lyrically that I just didn't want to stop the momentum, the forward motion. I was like, okay, this is working for me. Everything's going good. You know, I was happy with the way my lyrics were coming around. I was happy with the way I was singing. So I didn't want to wait for, for mm. things and stop that forward motion. So now that I'm at book 10, uh, book 10, album 10, and I have a bit of time, now I can maybe start thinking about on the 11th one, what am I going to do? Maybe should I bring in a couple of different people? And I'm very open to that. So we'll see what happens. Cool. That's Yeah, and it's interesting the way... I guess that that sort of happened organically and you know it, it it sounds like you're not you don't have a master plan of when you have guests when you don't you were just in a groove and you were going with it so that's awesome yeah absolutely i mean i i don't i don't never really want to go in with a with a plan where i'm like okay you know th th this album this and this has to happen and that i mean unless it's a concept record and i have a something certain a certain thing in mind then maybe I'll say, okay, I can imagine this person playing on this or, you know, this happening there. But otherwise, I just tend to want to just write, you know, and whatever happens, happens. I mean, one of the interesting things is the song, The Little Chair. Um, when I was writing that song, uh, when I got to the middle part of that, uh, it, it kind of struck me how much parts of it started started to sound like saga to be mm. like that whole piano part that did, 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 that little bit in the middle there and, and that sort of trading off guitar bit reminded me a little bit of maiden but it, it's very much a song that reminded me of like a dream theater meets saga like you know that, that period like on the loose and i'm the flyer and all that kind of stuff like that kind of keyboard and piano thing i mean piano being something that i love as an instrument uh, but never thought that I would put it as such a forward instrument in a soloing situation like I did in this song. And, and I thought it really worked nicely in there with that sort of middle section in that song. Yeah, it certainly does. And, and you know, it's funny that you bring up some of those uh, those bands, Mark, because we've talked about, you know, some of, you know, my personal influences that I hear in, in, in your songs and you said it made and I've, I often hear Queens, right? And mm -hmm. I there are a couple of moments when I listen to this in headphones and I'm just like sitting there with my eyes closed and I'm literally transported back to my like high school bedroom and like, you know, 1987 thinking, you know, thinking about those bands and listen in the very best way. Right. Like not, yeah. not it because it's just, it's just, it's giving me that feeling that, that energy and the, uh, the dueling guitars. Um, it, it, it really is. And, and I do think, Part of it is what you were talking about with the sound, with like you know the less tracks, uh, but you know the, the 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 sounding better and, and the effects taking more. But yeah. I I really found more that more so I think than on any of the Project Gemini, uh, you know, just closing my eyes and feeling like I was uh, 16 years old again. It's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm gonna channel off of that. Um, World on Edge took me all the way back the very beginning to moon age daydreams so mark were you tra channeling your uh inner mick ronson there with those uh, stops at the beginning of world on edge yeah i mean as as you guys probably know mick ronson is probably one of my top three biggest influences on my guitar playing whether it's writing wise or just performance wise 
I've always loved his guitar playing. There, there's something about it, it kind of has this raw personality to it, but very melodic to it. Um, I, I, when I write a song and when I play, I never go in with the, with the train of thought of saying, I'm going to put on my Alex Lifeson hat or my, you know, Mick Ronson hat here. It just kind of comes out how it does. And then after when I listen back to it, then it kind of hits me like, ooh, uh, that sounds very, you know, Alex. That sounds very, you know, Dave Murray. Or that sounds very, you know, Chris DeGarmo. It, it kind of hits me after I do it. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're always in, uh, influenced by the, the music surrounding us and what we're listening to, whether we like it or not. I mean, a lot of people... Uh, and, and me included, I've, I've, there was a time period where I kind of said to myself when I was going to write a record that I would not listen to any outside records while I was working on an album. And I found that it was helpful to a degree, but I just found that it was kind of punishment. Because, I mean, I love music so much, I found that <laughs> if I was working on an album for two months, how could I not listen to something else over a month or two? You know, it just it couldn't work anymore. So maybe some other stuff started leaking in. I mean, I always find it interesting when you guys pick out these little things and uh, bring them up because sometimes I don't hear it initially, but then after I go back and listen to it, I'm like, yeah, he was right. That that does kind of sound like, you know, Baker. It does sound like Alex or whatever. Oh, I definitely uh, found myself having some rush moments uh, in this particular. Um, very, very, very good rush moments. <laughs> Mark, <laughs> do you just have like a patch of keyboard sounds that you use because your sounds are always so like perfect for each um, song, the, the way you use them in each song. And I don't, I mean, my experience in, in my own recording is if I ever go over to the keyboard, like I'll play the part in five minutes, but it will take me four hours to find the sound. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. how do you do that? Well, I mean, over on here, if I turn my camera, I have my Gaia up here. Right, and I have down here my roll my Yamaha EX7. Now, the, the, this might sound kind of uh, you know minor, but getting this dual keyboard stand was a very big thing for me because before I only had just this keyboard down here, right, and it was the only thing that was kind of plugged into my mixer over here. And whenever I wanted to use this, I had to go and grab it off the floor. I had it down here on the side and hook it up and stuff like that. And after a while. It got neglected a bit because I was like, oh, God, I don't go pick this thing up now and move it and this and that. So I was like, I'll just use the Yamaha. But now that I have it all hooked up and stuff, I find I turn everything on and I start fiddling with everything. And, like, and then I start, I find myself doing the Rick Wakeman thing. Ooh, I'm going to play this and then this together. And, you know, and then all of a sudden I find these interesting combinations of sounds. You know, like this, uh, this one has like a synthy sound. I mean, I remember the reason why I bought this is because I saw Jeff Downs on one of his keyboard tours for the for a yes tour i think it was like 2016 or 17 he had a guy in his setup and i remember that when he showed it on there i was like oh that has some interesting sounds it's very much more like lead centric that keyboard you know a lot of like the doo -doo 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 kind of sounds you can get off of that and this one's like a workhorse thing you can go so having the multiple keyboards like that really helped because yeah having that's uh, you know, stress about hooking everything up and getting it back again. Uh, it's it was it's a great thing to to do. I mean, I have one more keyboard over here. I have a a, a Novation base station. It's like a little small Ooh. keyboard, but it's very like you know, doo -doo 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 -doo. like it's almost like the, the, the Moog Taurus pedal stuff on there. You can do a lot of the low end stuff, 
And there, they did have a multiple three-layer stand, but I was like, nah, that's going to look a little, you know, Asia, Jeff, <laughs> you know, Jeff, Jeff Downs, Asia, circa, you know, like, like whole, you know, doing you all kinds of craziness. You can't get a third keyboard until you get a cape, Mark. Mm, yeah, exactly. Is, is that where the cutoff is? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That, that's very cool. And it is funny. It's, it's so funny that you say that, like, all of the things that that uh, you know we all do, and all the work that we do, and and it is sometimes hysterical. What will stop us, right? Like, oh, the keyboard's unplugged and it's sitting over there on the floor. I'll just do this instead, right? Instead of uh, yeah. So, uh, so it's pretty cool that 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 set up. I, yeah, I think it was well worth it. I, I think keyboard sounds, as usual, are spot on in every time each place that you use them. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the one thing that I am tempted to do is a lot of my friends, like Joe. He has like a like a like a MIDI keyboard, like just like a like a one with no sounds, just like a regular one hundred and fifty dollar keyboard, and you plug in your MIDI into your computer, into your sound card, and you can do all the plugins, and then you have all the sounds. I never liked going down that route, but one thing that I did find recently that really excited me now, that I kind of went, "Ooh, okay." I might grab myself a hundred and fifty dollar blank keyboard. Is that they had these little modules now where they uh, were Roland recreated some of their most popular keyboards like the jp8000 for example and i loved that keyboard when it was out back in the day but they made it into like a little small thing about yay big it's just the brain right so if you buy yourself like the 150 dollar keyboard you can just plug into the midi into this little brain and suddenly you have the jp8000 all the sounds at your disposal and it only costs like 450 bucks that brain wow all right so I'm going to be really hunting down these Roland little $400 pieces because you can get a couple of different, you know, classic keyboards. And then instead of having to buy huge keyboards, I can just buy this little one and get those little modules and I'll have a whole world of keyboards. And believe me, when you get a new piece of gear like that, I'm sure Paul or anybody else who does music can, anybody else can tell you when you get a new piece of gear, sometimes you start finding yourself writing songs pretty quickly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty. That's it's funny, you know, the, between the guitar pedals and the and the keyboard thing, it, it's like it's like those old Atari games that now they make them in these little tiny boxes. <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, plug, plug in your TV. So is the idea? So you were talking about Joe and the and the MIDI. The idea if of that is that you know you 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 play the MIDI keyboard into your recording device and then you can just swap out any sounds as you go and you can like play it. Is that is that sort of the the thought process behind that? Well, you, that's using yeah. That MIDI keyboard instead of yeah. Well, exactly. Joe, how Joe does it is he plugs in the MIDI keyboard into the, into his sound card, and he has a whole whack of plugins on his computer. But what I didn't like about it is I didn't like having to, you know, go into the computer to get my sounds. I like having something physical in front of me, right? So I can turn knobs and stuff like that in front of me, and that's why I like going down that route where I can actually have these little small modules and use those because it, 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 I find it's very, very handy that way because, you know, th- when you're using a computer as well, I've, you start eating into the CPU, right? And you start eating into the RAM and stuff like that. And if you're running Pro Tools as well at the same time, you could start getting a lag. That's why I've always been a fan of using real keyboards and real stuff like that because it gives a lot more power to the, you know, to the Pro Tools end of mm-hmm. stuff. And you can do other things as well. 
and not you know bog it down with stuff that you're running because when you start running a ton of plugins especially if they're really big ones like re reverbs are notoriously bad for eating up cpu and all of a sudden you get that message boop not enough cpu please unplug some of your <laughs> you know plugins like oh god you know so <laughs> th that's that's one of those things where i like using real gear instead yeah i like it yeah. i like keeping it real with that that's yeah. cool my God, this uh, JP8000 has uh, two different oscillators, and the filters are all sliders. It's very uh, tactile. It's very real. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love that. Kid. I remember the first time I saw it at my local music store, I, I w desperately wanted it, but it was like really expensive back in the day. It was like like almost $3,000 Canadian at the time. I was like, wow, I, I can't afford to grab something like that. But I remember just immediately when i was playing on it a hundred different ideas came to me when i was playing it so now that they have it in that kind of you know compact version uh, I'm, I'm very excited to say the least so three albums one about to come out two on deck mm -hmm. and I, so i guess you know you're going to start working on the 11th album <laughs> um so is there is there any uh at any given time you know you mentioned um uh i i i don't remember what i think you said that was it the moment that was written during book two yes um book three yeah book th or book three so so you know how much crossover is this like how, how many how many songs on album 10 you know were written in the mix of of all of these and you're just like ah, i'm just gonna hold off on those are they like are they like your like kids competing for your time like how how is that how do you process all that? Well, what what ends up happening, for example, when I wrote this one, I was like I said, I, I was kind of on a roll with writing it, and I started realizing with, with my rule that I have of trying to keep records between forty two and forty three minutes long, I started realizing that I was when I start crossing over that threshold, usually I'll have one or two songs extra on each album where I'm like, okay. I'll take the best ones and use it for the record, but I'll sometimes move corresponding songs over to the next project folder, right? And that's happened a, a bit with these ones. Um, the 10th the album, truthfully, was completely all written scratch. There was nothing that was from a previous thing and brought over. But uh, this one and the next one, which uh, the, the next album, the one after this one, is simply called Canada Tales and Stories. It's basically an album that talks about Canada, the, the country I live in, but talks about it in various tales and stories, like the different sorts of uh, like like popular stories that we've had, like, you know, not maybe not myths and legends, but uh, like historical stories that, that are popular within Canada, like, like, like there's a ghost ship story that's popular in, in the East Coast, right, that I've talked about. Uh, there's also, you know, the whole thing with the... Uh, the indigenous children that were found in Vancouver, uh, that were that were found, and you know that whole crime there, where they, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that that whole thing was is mentioned there. So it's kind of like a reflection on Canada, the good, the bad, sort of, you know, because I I don't think that you know, if you want to talk about the good, the good, you have to also sometimes bring in the bad as well to kind of level it out a bit, right? Uh, Canada isn't, you know, exactly a, a country of, you know, lined with gold. There is things that we've done incorrectly, and it should be mentioned as well, right? But there's there's a lot of good in there as well. And I mean, 
And I talk about, for example, back in the early, early days about the actual gold rush era. And that actually happened in Canada. There was, there was, a, there was like a gold rush here too, you know, back over to the Yukon side of Canada, you know. So uh, it's, it's, I find it's very interesting. I, let's put it this way. If you want to hear or read about some of the history of Canada, I think this album might be kind of interesting for you to, to listen to from a lyrical perspective. And I think musically it turned out really, really good. I'm really happy with the way that the music is on that. So uh, you'll, you'll see some similarities and some differences bet between this album and the next one too. That's cool. I love, I love albums that are, information gateways to other things so i'm really looking forward to that one yeah i, I think that's going to be great because james already did the cover for that i already have the album cover for that one he got inspired too because when he heard i was doing that he's like oh can i start working on that one too and i go because <laughs> i heard that you're doing something on canada and i go is that true because he listens to my youtube channel right oh cool and i go yeah i go absolutely i go if you have any ideas he goes he goes just just tell me what the stories are that you're going to be doing and that's all I need. And I told him, okay, well, one of them is about uh, the, the big forest fires that happened in Canada. That was one of the stories. Uh, there was also the story about all the uh, immigrants that Canada were openly letting come in, like with open arms, saying, you know, these countries were, you know, in bad situations and a lot of people were leaving and coming to Canada. And our prime minister was very happy to let them come in. But of course, what people seem to forget is that he brought all these people in, but had nowhere to put them. And then there was all kinds of stories here where people were living on the streets and there were overrun shelters and people were living in, you know, church basements. And that was sort of a, a blunder on his end. So I brought that up into a story as well, right? A song. So I told him all these different things that I wrote about and he just went nuts with the cover. So I, I think that that's going to be another interesting uh, album cover to look at. And that one, I have a great idea for some extras, like for some extra posters and stuff like that. So I'm really looking forward to doing that one as well. You know, I'm sitting here amazed at the prolific nature of, of what you do and, and you know, having three albums in the can and everything else. And and I'm feeling for James at this point. Like, does he have difficulty keeping up with you? Is like, <laughs> Mark, dude, give me a minute, would you? <laughs> uh, it's it's funny because whenever I between the time that he does his paintings, it's it's funny because he does have quite a bit of time that where he does it because once he's done, uh, usually I give him about five six months to do it. But with James, it, he usually needs like a month or two to do, to do his paintings. And when he's on a painting, he'll he'll never stop halfway through and work on something else. He'll always have to complete his other project. And I understand that, and I totally you know agree with that sort of scenario so he's he's had uh time but like i said the, the canada thing that was his idea to continue on that because as soon as he heard about that he was like i i have some great ideas for that so would it would you be would it be okay if i went ahead and did that now and i go well sure i mean i'm not going to say no i mean uh, who's going to say no to having another fantastic piece of artwork from you right so <laughs> absolutely um, so yeah so he went ahead and did it and i was very uh very happy with the results. So, and as I'm sitting here thinking about this, I'm just kind of, you know, things are, are popping into my head. And, and I guess we've talked a little bit about this before through your other, your other releases. But at this point, you know, the, the mechanics, if you will, the project management of putting together a, a physical release, whether it's the CD, 
um, or the the vinyls, like getting the artwork together, getting it to the right person, getting it there in the right time, lining up all of that. You got that locked in now, right? Is that is that in the easy part for you at this point? Yeah, I mean it's become it's become a lot easier. That's for damn sure. Um, when it first happened, I was kind of you know it was you know I was in foreign waters when it first started happening. I didn't know how to make a record or how to prepare half this stuff. But luckily, I stumbled upon people that had idea on how to do it. For example, you know James had an idea of how to make fantastic album covers. And I got that taken care of. And then I stumbled across a gentleman named uh, Jason Pollan, who's a longtime helper of mine now as well, who does all the graphic layouts of my stuff, whether it's the CD booklets. Uh, and he's involved a lot with all the graphic and all the artwork besides the cover. The cover is always James's territory, but the back covers or the CD booklets or the album booklets or the album posters and stuff like that, that is a lot of that is Jason Pollan's area. Mm. And he's done fantastic stuff. And how that came about is that he's a longtime listener of the Kiss podcast that I do. He's a big Kiss guy. And when I when he heard a long time ago that I needed help with some of this stuff, he asked if he could chip in. And I said, sure. And uh, he he's one of these guys who does like graphic layout and layouts for like magazines back in Wales where he lives. Like there's a he's involved with a lot of the soccer uh, teams back there overseas, mm, mm. and he's and he's done a lot of like uh, magazine layouts for their teams that whatever like soccer teams. And it was funny because one time he did this little uh, graphic idea for me, uh, and he goes, "Mark, do you mind if I put this in one of the soccer magazines?" I go, <laughs> "Go ahead if you want to put in Project Gemini in one of your soccer things. That would be great, you know." So he put in like a little one pager of Project Gemini in one of the soccer magazines that he does and you know that just shows like he he knows how to do these kind of layouts how to lay everything out and that's why uh, a lot of the booklets that you see the cd ones and the the, the vinyl ones they turned out so great i mean he and a lot of the things one of the things that he always does that i always get excited about is he does the the center labels for the vinyls mm. and i've always thought that once he started doing those that it really went up a step up in quality with him doing it I love how he does the Rifical records on there, and he always has like that little, uh, like little image of Toronto there underneath the name and stuff like that. Just the way he does these little, little attention to detail things, that I love in his uh, graphic layouts and the way he does his, the artwork. It's just fantastic. Well, and and that's that's an aspect of, that someone like me would never ever think of, right? Like you know the that label in the center of the vinyl, it, like who thinks about how that gets there or <laughs> what goes into it and what makes one better than another. But there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, 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 and he always gives me these, like, what's great is he always gives me multiple images to look at. He goes, I came up with this one and this one and this one. What do you think? So, uh, so it's always great to say, well, you know, I can actually choose. That's great. So how about this one? You know, and it's always, one's always, you know, this one's so good. Oh, this one's even better. Oh, this one's even better. You know, like he, he does such great work. And it's really, uh, really helpful because a lot of these things have to be set up in a certain format. And whenever, like, Train Records, who I always go through to, that makes my CDs and makes my vinyl, they always have these kind of templates. And you have to have it within the certain, you know, layout, how they have it. You know, don't go outside of these lines, otherwise it'll get cut off and stuff like that. And these guys know how to do that now, like, 
no problem. It's I don't even have to even remind them anything about that. They know everything like the back of their hands now. So now it's just a matter of, okay, guys, we're doing another record. Can you do this for me? James, can you make a cover for me? And then I contact Train Records and tell them there's another album coming down the line. And then they get, you know, we usually do the CDs first. And the CDs are always simple because with that, I give them the, I send over the music for them. You know, they start printing the CDs. I send over the artwork. And I could have a, a album, like a CD done within three, four weeks. Like it's pretty quick to turn around with them, right? But it's always the vinyl that's the killer. Because now back, like with this record just passed, uh, what's, What Lies Beyond, I waited almost nine months for that vinyl. That's how busy they were in mm -hmm. production there. So now I made it a point for this year that, you know, now that we're doing the pre-order for the CDs, once that's done, I'm going to start the vinyl pre-ordering as well, maybe at the middle of March, maybe the end of March, just to give people, you know, a chance to collect a bit of money again, because I just asked them for money for a CD, right? But I, I, I want I don't want to delay on it too much because the longer I wait on that, the longer I get into their system. And that's that's one thing that I've learned is that it's almost better to just tell them, yes, I'm starting a vinyl, get me into the system. Because once your name is put in to the cycle, you still have to wait a while. So better to just get at that end of it started than make the mistake of waiting until you have every last detail. Okay, I have everything <laughs> ready now, but now let's go. Because then it's like, okay, well, that took you three months to do that. That's another three months added on top of the seven months you're going to have to wait. So, you know, uh, it, this is all about timing. And after doing a bunch of records, you start realizing how the little tricks you can do to make it go quicker. Yeah. So, Mark, I've got to ask the question, do we know what color? <laughs> ah, that's a very important question, my friend. It is. Um, uh, as you know, I'm a big uh, colored vinyl guy. I don't think that I've had a black vinyl yet of any of my albums. It's always been color. Uh, what now? One now that I've completed one of my dreams that I've had, and I think I mentioned this once on uh, it was either your podcast or a different one. But uh, you guys being you know familiar with Kiss or even being fans of Kiss might have realized that one of my bucket list items as a musician was I wanted to release four albums and be able to correspond them with my favorite Kiss solo album. So I had a red vinyl, a blue, a purple, and a green. So I've completed the solo album's colors within my own catalog, right? So you know, Gene Simmons being red, Paul Stanley being purple, Ace being per blue, and uh, Peter Chris being green. So I that those colors are all represented in my vinyl now. So now the door is wide open for colors, uh, and I've always said you know i will always put up a poll on my facebook page and ask the supporters what colors they want to see in the future now um a few people have, uh, have said you know hey mark you know i would have no trouble if you actually did a black vinyl we were kind of overdue i think for a black right to actually have a black vinyl but you know I i'm open for anything i mean a lot of people have said why not do a clear you know but i'm, yeah. I'm some, some some of them I'm a little cautious with. For example, uh, clear, I know people find sort of a bit of a headache because when you hold it up, you see all those little breaks in the tracks and they sort of overlap Like because it's so clear. You sometimes see the other sides break mm. in there. So sometimes you don't know where to drop the needle if you're one of those people that <laughs> drop it in certain songs, right? 
And I also I've heard that white vinyl sometimes can be a little bit noisier than others for some reason. Really? So I kind of tend to yeah, I tend to stay steer away from the white, like solid white, you know. So the, the only uh, beef I have with white is I've got at least one that ended up being discolored from the sleeve it was in, which really annoys mm. the crap out of me. Yeah, uh, it, and the, being a Kiss collector, the, when they did the uh, anniversary release of the debut Kiss album years back. I guess that would have been the 40th anniversary. Mm. Uh, it was supposed to be white with black splatter, and it ended up being white with like one dot of black on it. So it was <laughs> a very big, it was a very big uh, brouhaha within the Kiss community. What kind of what is this? Where's the splatter? It's just like one black dot, you know. So uh, it's almost a jinx to use white. And I, I have a Bowie record uh, that that was on white vinyl, and it's. Yeah, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the quietest vinyl I've had either. So I, I'm kind of cautious like that. I mean, as you guys know, I'm a little bit anal with trying to get the absolute best sonic quality on my albums and stuff like that. But I think I owe it to my supporters to be that way because I don't want them to drop you know thirty dollars Canadian for a record plus you know whatever amount for shipping, and then get a record that they're going to sit there and say, "Whoa, this is pretty noisy," you know. <laughs> Yeah, you de you definitely don't want that. I, but it yeah. it is it is fun that you know you've got all these uh, you know options available to you. We had talked several years ago at this point um, about you know the 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 process of making vinyls, and I believe there was a distinct lacquer shortage at the time. But mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me the whole industry has changed so dramatically in those past several years since we first started talking to you about this, that my guess is the infrastructure has sort of built itself back up or not. Isn't it, isn't it incredible, Joe? <laughs> isn't it incredible how back in the day we were oh, panicking, you know, like there's only one company now that does lacquers now and it's in Japan. What are we going to do? And I remember when I was talking to uh, Kevin, the guy who does my lacquer cuts at uh, the lacquer channel, who now has gone actually independent from Lacquer Channel, but he still does incredible work, so I'm going to always use him. Wow. Uh, but but the Lacquer Channel, at that point, were like stocking up. Like they bought like every possible lacquer they could find from even from other sources, like people who had them, like buying them off them to kind of have like a, a war supply in case this became a situation where people had to wait months and months to get new lacquers, right? Uh, so. But that has gone the way of the dodo bird now. And whenever I call them now and say, uh, I need to get a lacquer done for my records, I go, is, is there going to be any problem? Oh, no, no, we, we, got, we got lots. You know, so it's like, okay, so obviously something has happened within the industry where they've kind of rectified this. Or maybe the Japanese plant across the sea had, you know, added a few dozen more employees all of a sudden. And now all of a sudden they have a, you know, a good supply coming out the door. But whatever the case may be, uh, that end of it is, you know, taken care of. And and the funny thing is, too, remember that story that was out a long time ago about the, I think it was the Universal or one of those a big record labels, their uh, their their plant burnt to the ground mm -hmm. and had all the master tapes? Yep. Well, now it seems years later, there was a story saying that they maybe were wrong with the amount of tapes that got actually burnt. So... Now, you know, the big the big brouhaha that they said about, you know, oh, we lost tons of albums in this fire. Now it seems like that that wasn't true, that it was only, 
you know, a certain amount that was, you know, in there, or, or they had other stuff that was in there that they didn't realize it wasn't as many of the master teams. So, anyways, I think that the panic within the industry has kind of calmed down finally. It it amazes me the the amount of uncertainty that exists around where all of these recordings exist. Um, I'm thinking back to when you know Kevin Mulrine wrote you know his. Um, his book on the, the uh, Toronto story. And there was yes. a whole big chapter in there about, you know, where were the, the multi-tracks and no one was really sure. And I mean, like, how do these, how do these things go missing? <laughs> I remember the coolest job I ever heard of, not that it was posted like for, for, um, for application, but I, I just came across this and that was the, the role of being the Pink Floyd archivist. And I thought mm. if there's a dream job in the world, that's the one I want. That would be fantastic. Is it, is it Joe? Because think about it. You, you're, you're now ahead of their catalog and David Gilmore calls you up. Um, Joe, how are you, sir, today? <laughs> Listen, I need you to find our Italian pressing of animals it disappeared <laughs> i can't seem to find it anywhere can you look around at the several thousand people that could have it within their collection and get it back this is what's actually happened i mean i remember reading a or hearing a podcast where they were talking about the queen master tapes and this guy who was with their archivist ended up finding these you know quarter inch master tapes in people's collections and not realizing how they even got to these people you know yeah like there's incredible stories out there. I mean, even now, I mean, you know how on YouTube they have these things called YouTube Shorts, how they're like you know one minute little clips on YouTube. There, I just, I just ironically saw one before I went and talked to you guys today in the afternoon with Zappa. Okay, mm. and he's in his vault, and he's in his like vault with all his master tapes and everything, and he's talking about John Lennon and Yoko Ono, how they appeared. Uh, in, in a, on a one of the, his live shows in, in an encore, right? And it was for I believe it was the uh, the, the one of those uh, the, the, that album, the Zappa's one, the with the what the white cover. I, I always forget the name of that album, but it's a live album, anyways. And he shows the master tape. He pulls it out and shows it. And he goes, "This here is the master tape that has my performance, the encore performance with with John and Yoko." Now. These these people ask me why do I have my own storage locker and my own vault for my tapes? This is why because this tape here with John and Yoko was in a previously other storage area by another company that had it, and I realized years later when I took out this tape to work on it that somebody had taken that tape out and replaced it with an unknown band's master tape in there and snatched my tape. Oh my, oh my god. god. So <laughs> yeah, so that tape that has the Yoko Ono and John Lennon performance with Zappa is in somebody's co collection because they scooped it from this vault that was previously, you know, owned by another company and whoever was maybe working in there found it uh Zappa's tapes, eh? Yoink and grabbed the tape and replaced it with another one because realistically, unless you're going through all these tapes on a daily basis, you're not going to know if anybody touched those tapes. Right. You know, especially in a vault where there's several other bands and hundreds and thousands of other master tapes. So, you know, it's it's an interesting story how sometimes these tapes go walking. So, Joe, if you're looking for a job with Pink Floyd, don't forget, these tapes could be walking. <laughs> and don't forget, 
people, mm. you know, when, back in the day, they were sending tapes all over the world. Like when they were pressing records, and, and you see like these albums that come out, like you hear like a Pink Floyd's Italian pressing of of, of a you know Adam Hart Mother or something. They were actually sending tapes back in the day, like master tapes over to those countries for them to make their own versions, and then they would send them back on on you know strictly all on goodwill like we trust you that you'll return our tapes you know <laughs> i i and still think it'd be great as long as it's just david who's calling me we're in business <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't, I don't want to hear from that. the other guy yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but i mean it, it is a it is a crazy thing when you think about it though because you know nowadays i heard that there are some companies that like record labels that will refuse to re to let their tapes out of their possession now like there's one i think mobile fidelity actually had to go to some of these places now and make digital copies of these tapes on their premises they would have to bring their own digital recording equipment over to their vault interesting and do it because they would not allow those tapes to walk and leave that's how the whole kerfuffle with mofi actually happened you heard about that right how the, everybody was saying before that MoFi was using original analog tapes for their stuff, and then it leaked that it was all digital for the last 10 years. Hmm. And people were saying, what? I was buying these records on the assumption that they're all analog. And it, how they realized that that happened is because they, were, they made the mistake of saying that they were releasing a MoFi version of Michael Jackson's Thriller. Okay? And people kind of clued in, like, wait a minute. If you're going to be making, like, 50,000 copies of this, that means you're going to have to send the tape and use that tape several times to make lacquers. From it, are you telling me that Capitol Records or whatever the the label Epic, whatever, are letting you take those master tapes out and taking them over to MoFi? I don't think that's gonna. And people realized this, and they had to come clean and say, no, we're not using the tapes. We actually made digital copies of it, and then the shit hit the fan. You know? Hmm. Wow. Given all that you're working on, having a couple records in the can and time to reflect, what does this mean for one of our favorite collaborations, The Dark Monarchy? Oh, I'm very, very glad that you asked that. Because guess what? As of today being February 26th, 2024, me and Joe have completed all the songwriting, all the drums, bass, guitar, and I'm about two songs left to do for rhythm guitars and we're clearly on our way to album number four being yes. almost done. Excellent. So, uh, yeah. So we are doing another record. Uh, it's turning out really, really cool. I mean, uh, Joe, I don't know if, you know, cause Joe told me at one point that he was doing some renovations in his house. Right. And that kind of delayed our initial start with it. So I don't know if these, delays kind of got on his nerves because I found that a lot of his stuff got a little darker now since <laughs> we last worked. I don't know if that annoyed him, all that all that construction in his house uh, got on mm. his nerves or whatever, but uh, some interesting music has been made so far. I'm very anxious to hear where we go vocally with this because that's one thing we haven't touched on yet are the vocals or the lyrics, but musically, it's it's really cool. I mean, we have one song that's really tricky i mean it was one of the more trickier songs we've ever did like seven eight to six eight to seven eight to four four to three four to you know all these odd nine eight stuff like that and but, it, but when you when you look at it on the pro tools template you're like what the hell is this but when you listen to it it flows so nicely that's the one thing i got to give joe full props on is that even when he does these multiple uh time signatures and key signatures and all kinds of things it never sounds 
like really bad edits put together. It sounds very, very flowing and it sounds really, really good. I'm very much looking forward to getting this album done. And this is the one benefit really quickly. I'm just going to add uh, to doing the situation where I have three records in the can, because now when a situation like the dark monarchy came up, I can give it my attention, not have to worry and say, sorry, Joe, today I need to a week's worth of time to work on the next project Gemini thing. So the, I'm done all that. I can just work on the, you know, the releasing end of that. And that doesn't take up, you know, as much time as, you know, working on a full record does. So uh, I'm very happy to announce that the dark monarchy are working on album number four and will be done hopefully by the summer. That is great, man. We've got a, a good year <laughs> ahead of us. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I want to hear those power tools. I want. I want to hear. The, <laughs> I want to hear angry Joe Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, it's funny because he 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 loves his synthesizers. He loves his string stuff, uh, and a lot of his sort of synth stuff that he has in there has a little bit of more of that angered industrial edge to it a bit now not to say that we're going to sound like ramstein or anything like that but it, it it definitely has a little bit more growl to some of the keyboard parts which is which is good i i like it uh which made me have to think a bit about my guitar tone because sometimes when you have sort of these distorted keyboard parts it can easily be disguised or confused as a guitar part so yeah. you sometimes have to you know eq it a bit differently to let them stand out from each other that's amazing. I'm thinking of, of you and Joe making a Ramstein record. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what's in my head. Oh God, I love it. All right. So um yeah, I mean anything else, Paul or, or Ken for, for Mark with regards to uh to the, the new record here? Uh, not from me, Mark. It's been too long. Great catching up with you uh, tonight and looking yes. forward to all the new stuff coming out. Uh, Mark, it's all I can do not to pull the trigger on this SSL2 Plus interface I've been staring at for the last 45 minutes. Oh, I'm, tell I'm telling you, Ken, <laughs> it, it, it's good. I mean, the, and it, the, it has a little 4K switch there, the little button there. Uh, what, what that's supposed to do, actually, is... The, the 4000 series mixing consoles that they had back in the day. And the funny thing is they, they said that the 4000 series consoles that in between the nine, years of 1992 and 2000, 95% of the albums that were mixed that you heard on radio were done on 4000 series consoles. So that when you push that little button, it's supposed to give you that sort of frequency bump of a 4000K console. So let that be a little extra uh, <laughs> to make you think about grabbing that as well. Oh boy! <laughs> and it's also got a MIDI interface on it, which is kind oh, of yeah. convenient. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that, yeah, that's the two plus. The SSL two plus has the MIDI interface in there too, so it's it's very good, very very good stuff. Amazing. All right, so I gotta I gotta ask you guys the one thing really quickly before oh, I let you go. Cool. So I have a question for you guys. So I've been a little bit out of the loop. Of late, I'll be honest, okay, because I've been working on a bunch of records and stuff like that. So, what has the progressive palaver been up to in the last six, seven months? I mean, I, I used to, I know that you guys had like a huge series on Peter Gabriel, and you're looking at a bunch of discographies and stuff like that. What, what is, what is the palaver doing right now? 
So the the palaver right now is is honestly catching up with a, a back catalog of all sorts of recordings that we have been uh, accumulating without actually getting out. But we've we've gotten the uh, the editing log jam broken free, and we've just finished releasing a series of album of episodes on albums that were less old. Um, and I I'm I'm sad to say that our our episode on Sound of Contacts Dimension Knot is really not getting the traction that I think it deserves. So I'm going to, on my own show here, plug that episode on Sound of Contacts <laughs> Dimension Knot because it is, in my opinion, one of the finest records of any genre, um, you know, in, in the 21st century, for sure. And it needs to be recognized as such. And so what we're going to be releasing now, though, is, as I mentioned uh, earlier on, is this, we did a parallel track of Sticks and Kansas mm-hmm. uh, representing sort of, you know, different facets of American progressive music, if you will. And that was an interesting sort of exercise to do those two bands side by side. So we've got, uh, that's the the next thing we have going on that will be coming out here probably over the next, I don't know, several months. And then beyond that, we're still kind of feeling around for where we go next. We've got a couple of different options. You know, there are some some of the, the classic prog bands that we haven't considered. There are some of the, the newer bands, like we were um, bandying about perhaps the Pineapple Thief as something we could talk about. Um, I'm in, I'm personally in a big period of discovery with porcupine tree. So, I mean, there are a lot of different things um, to, to figure out, but I mean, like I said, there are some of the, the, the huge classics of, of Prague that we haven't touched on yet either that we're going to have to get to at some point. So, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of, of where we are. We can go a lot of different places. Awesome. Um, that out that uh episode that you mentioned that you said that didn't have the the traction that you were hoping for. Yeah. That, that's with Dave Kersner and wasn't it Phil Collins's son? S- Simon that? Collins. Yeah. Simon Collins. That that's that's a great that's a great record. I, I have to admit it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that the record that has their version of Keep It Dark on it? I think mm, didn't they do a no, version it does of not. that? Oh no that, no no! That was like a side little thing okay. that they did yeah yeah but the the album itself is all original composition between okay. uh, uh the four band members yeah yeah because yeah. yeah. i know dave kersner having talked to him a few times uh i know that he has uh good memories of that time period and i know that, that you can always sense when he talks about it because sometimes he does these fantastic spur of the moment instagram live bits yep. on his instagram yep. Yeah. Uh, and he talks about you know you can you can hear it in his voice that he'd he'd love to get those guys back in the fold and do something with them, <laughs> but there's something always preventing it you know they, and he won't get into great details as to why but hopefully maybe sometimes they can work it out you know yeah well, well, we we watched Dave put together everybody but Simon so uh, all the supporting musicians Kelly wasn't there though. Matt Simon. Dorsey. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. So Kelly wasn't there, um, but yeah, they kind of split into two camps. So Simon Collins and um, uh, Kelly Nordstrom have their own E Molecule project, which is a little bit more Trent Reznor influenced. And then mm-hmm. Dave is still doing kind of like the more palatable commercial version of what they do. And 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 Dave just had an amazing 
troupe of musicians is Fall at Progstock with uh, Durgan mm-hmm. McBroom from Pink Floyd and Fernando Perdomo and, and Matt yep. Dorsey is is opening for Marillion Weekends and doing his own thing now. So 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 that's a whole squadron of musicians that have been working together for years, they're really tight. And they re- reproduced that sound of contact Dimensionaut album uh, a couple of times over, over the span of of Prague stock and an extension gig. So, so that, 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 you know, that was, that, that was good for us to get out of the house and cover some live shows. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll ask you one last question and then we can wrap it up. Uh, you mentioned, uh, brilliant weekends. Okay. I'm a big brilliant guy. Always have been. And the, the big, the big thing amongst brilliant fans that people always kind of like, or grind, grind their teeth out with me as I've always said, I've a rather Steve, uh, a Steve H guy, Hogart mm-hmm. yeah. guy, more than Fish, to be honest, uh, and love what he does with the band. What What's your opinion on their latest record? Love it, hate it. What What do you guys think? Absolutely love it. It took me a long time to get there. I didn't get it at first, mm-hmm. but I, I actually had the I had a very similar experience with. With fear as well. I did not get fear for a very long time. Both these records, I wasn't really particularly um, inspired to listen to them. And then when I was going to see them live, it was sort of the impetus that I needed. And once I sort of focused and once I got the, the, the motivation to listen to each of those records, I was like, oh, this is great. And then seeing them both performed live was just like the wrapping on the package. And mm-hmm. like uh, seeing, because um, Sarah and I went and saw Marillion Weekend on our honeymoon, actually, and seeing them perform um, an hour before it's dark, like there's always the the this is the third Marillion Weekend I've experienced, and there's always something magical in those shows. There's just something about that collection of people especially in montreal um but but seeing them perform that record sort of at the very tail end of the pandemic it really it it sounds hokey but it it really brought everything into focus as to what that record was why it's so important even if i appreciate the fact that it's dated in the sense that it's tied to something that heaven help us i hope we never experience again yeah. that's probably more than you wanted but I, i'm no that's fine <laughs> that's that's great ken what about you the same thing or oh my goodness um with with really and we run so deep you know that's the first band that flavor uh covered back in 2017 2018 mm. we did we did their whole canon and and i haven't been to nearly the, the number that joe and paul have but um uh, it, 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 you know, it was kind of a bonding experience for us to to sync up at, at these different shows on the Fear Tour, and particularly on the Marbles Tour. I, I, I think I think uh, if, yeah. if, if I was ever on the fence, uh, these guys really reeled me in with Marbles, and I and yeah. I, I took it hook, line, and sinker. Absolutely. So, what about you uh, there, Paul? I'm still in the not quite getting it phase with an hour before it's dark, if I'm being honest. But I also, um, similar to like Joe said, I had a really tough time with fear. Uh, when it came out, I, I just couldn't get into it. And then I saw them perform it live. And after seeing it live, 
it sort it sort of like sh- you know shocked me into you know waking me up a little bit, and then yeah. I and I loved uh, I loved fear. So I think it might be key for me to see uh, some of our Fort Stark performed live. I'm still struggling with that one, if I'm being honest. Uh, well, let that be a lesson, people out there. If you're ever unsure of a record, go listen to them live, and it might change everything. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Well, that was that was fun, Mark. Um, definitely appreciated gushing a little bit about Marillion. So when we talk about what's on your mind, we mentioned at the top of the show, the CD and digital pre-sales are happening now. The actual release date is March 1st. March 1st. So yeah. um, that's coming up very soon. And then you anticipate following on closely with a vinyl presale after you get sort of the CDs out and take care of all that business. Is that correct? Yeah, basically once March 1st hits, hopefully by then I'll have everything uh, done with, uh, you know, Jason and those guys, as far as the graphic stuff and uh, I'll send it in to get printed. And uh, by the middle of March uh, or even by the end of March, I'll start the vinyl pre-order of this album as well. Cool. And of course, everyone can find this on the Project Gemini Bandcamp page, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So. Absolutely. On there, you'll, you'll, you can order now the, the CD and the digital version. Of course, you'll be able to order the vinyl when it comes out. And of course, this time I will be also offering some test pressings as well of the album. So if you're interested in getting a copy of that, oh, cool. you, you may do so as well. Uh, the, the funny thing was I offered an executive producer uh, thing in my pre-order. I saw that. And, who, who got those? <laughs> uh, that th- that was uh, Preston Fraser jumped in immediately on that, and another longtime uh, supporter. I'll just say his name is Paul. Okay, uh, that got in on it. Uh, and it's funny because what ended up happening is, and I didn't know this about Bandcamp. Sorry, I don't. I won't go into a long diatribe here. But the 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 thing about Bandcamp that I didn't understand was that if you put an extra in during a pre-order. It it and you know because usually it it won't uh, the the thing won't show until you activate it. But when you put it in as a merchandise thing, like the like the extra things, like the like that a vinyl and the executive producer thing, once you've added it into your thing, it'll immediately show even before you activate it for some reason, like the pre-order. Like hmm. Before I hit go on the pre-order. I already had both of them sold out before I even started the pre-order. I was like, what the heck? So before I even started it, they were already sold out. So nobody even had a real chance unless they were sitting on my band camp waiting. Like some of the, some people do, believe it or not. Uh, when they knew the record was going to be coming up for pre-order soon. And they went, oh, there's something available. Boom. And they bought it immediately. So it was sold out before it even the pre-order even started. So I will make some more test pressings available. So. Cool. Amazing. Excellent. Well, I look forward to uh, to getting the physical copy of that. I look forward to seeing what color vinyl is eventually chosen. Yes. I look forward to albums 9 and 10, Dark Monarchy, album 4. It's just yes. 2024 is a cornucopia of, of Mark Anthony Kay, and I, I'm really looking forward to it, Mark. Great. Thanks again for your, all your support, guys. It's been too long since we've talked, so I'm very glad that we did that today. Yeah, very, very glad we uh, we got a chance to catch up. Please give our best to uh, Yes Music Podcast partner Kevin Mulrine for us, and uh, yes. we'll make sure we catch up when uh, you're. Uh, m- maybe we'll talk about Dark Monarchy next, or maybe it'll be Record Nine. Whatever, 
We'll find yeah. it. We'll find a reason. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it, guys, and I hope you guys are doing well. Excellent. Thanks. Take care of yourself, Mark. Yeah, Mark. You too. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palavras. Always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, X, or Threads. We are at Progpala on all of those or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala. That's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.